0: Finder of Missing Heirs The professional prosecutor is continually surprised at the insignificant amount of crime existing in comparison with the extraordinary scope of criminal opportunity. To be sure, the number of crimes actually detected is infinitesimal as contrasted with those committed. But even so, the conviction constantly grows that the world is astonishingly honest when one considers the unlikelihood that any specific prospective offense will be discovered. How few dishonest servants there are, for example, out of the million or so composing that class of persons, who have an unlimited opportunity to snap up not only unconsidered trifles, but personal property of great value. The actual honesty of the servants is probably greater than that of the masters in the final analysis. Men are not only presumed to be innocent in the eyes of the law, but are found to be so as a matter of daily experience so far as honesty in the ordinary affairs of life is concerned, and the fact that we rely so implicitly upon the truthfulness and integrity of our fellows is the principal reason why violations of this imperative social law should be severely dealt with. If it were possible adequately to determine or deal with any such issue, mere lying should be made a crime. It is a matter of constant wonder that shrewd businessmen will put through all sorts of deals when thousands of dollars are at stake, relying entirely upon the word of some single person whom they do not in fact know. John Smith is looking for a house. He finds one he likes with an old lady who says her name is Sarah Jones living in it and offers her $40,000 for her real estate. She accepts. His lawyer searches the title and finds that Sarah Jones is the owner of record. The old lady is invited to the lawyer's office, executes a warranty deed, and goes off with the $40,000. Now, in a great number of instances, no one really knows whether the aged dame is Sarah Jones or not, and she perhaps may be, and sometimes is, only the caretaker's second cousin, who is looking after the house in the latter's absence. There are thousands of acres of land and hundreds of millions of money waiting at compound interest to be claimed by unknown heirs or next of kin. Even if the real ones cannot be found, one would think that this defect could be easily supplied by some properly ingenious person. My Uncle Bill went to sea in 45 and was never heard from again. Will you find out if he left any money? Wrote a client to the author. Careful search failed to reveal any money. But if the money had been found first, how easy it would have been to turn up a nephew. Yet the industry of producing properly authenticated nephews, heirs, legatees, next of kin and claimants of all sorts, has never been adequately developed. There are plenty of agents who, for a moderate fee, will inform you whether or not there is a fortune waiting for you, but there is no agency within the writer's knowledge which will supply an heir for every fortune. From a business point of view, the idea seems to have possibilities. Some few years after the Civil War, a Swede named Ebi Peterson emigrated to this country to better his condition. Fortune smiled upon him, and he amassed a modest bank account, which, with considerable foresight, he invested in a large tract of unimproved land in the region known as the Bronx, New York City. In the summer of 1888, Peterson determined to take a vacation and revisit Sweden, and accordingly deeded all his real estate to his wife. Just before starting, he decided to take his wife and only child, a little girl of 10 or 12, with him. Accordingly, they set sail from Hoboken Saturday, August eleventh, upon the steamer geyser of the Thingvalla line bound for Copenhagen. At four o'clock Tuesday morning, at a point 30 miles south of Sable Island and 200 miles out of Halifax, the geyser, in the midst of a thick fog, crashed suddenly into a sister ship, the Thingvalla of the same line, and sank. The Thingvala was herself badly crippled, but, after picking up 31 survivors, managed to limp into Halifax, from which port the rescued were brought to New York. Only 14 of the Geyser's passengers had been saved, and the Petersons were not among them. They were never heard of again, and no relatives came forward to claim their property, which, happening to be in the direct line of the city's development, was, in course of time, mapped out into streets and house lots, and became exceedingly valuable. Gradually, houses were built upon it, various people bought it for investment, and it took on the look of other semi-developed suburban property. In the month of December 1905, over 17 years after the sinking of the geyser, a lawyer named H. Huffman Brown offered to sell, at a bargain, to a young architect named Benjamin Levitan two house lots adjacent to the southwest corner of 174th Street and Monroe Avenue, New York City. It so happened that Brown had, not long before, induced Levitan to go into another real estate deal, in which the architect's suspicions had been aroused by finding that the property alleged by the lawyer to be improved was, in fact, unbuilt upon. He had lost no money in the original transaction, but he determined that no such mistake would occur a second time, and he accordingly visited the property and also had a search made of the title, which revealed the fact that Brown was not the record owner, as he had stated, but that, on the contrary, the land stood in the name of William R. Hubert. It should be borne in mind that both the parties to this proposed transaction were men well known in their own professions. Brown, particularly, was a real estate lawyer of some distinction, and an editor of what were known as the old New York Civil Procedure Reports. He was a middle-aged man, careful in his dress, particular in his speech, modest and quiet in his demeanor by reputation a gentleman and a scholar, and had practiced at the New York Bar some twenty-five years. But Levitan, who had seen many wolves in sheep's clothing, and had something of the Sherlock Holmes in his composition, determined to seek the advice of the district attorney, and having done so, received instructions to go ahead and consummate the purchase of the property. He, therefore, informed Brown that he had learned that the latter was not the owner of record, to which Brown replied, that was true, but that the property really did belong to him, in fact, being recorded in Hubert's name merely as a matter of convenience, because Hubert was unmarried, and that moreover he, Brown, had an unrecorded deed from Hubert to himself which he would produce, or would introduce Hubert to Levitan and let him execute a deed direct. Levitan assented to the latter proposition, and the 14th of December, 1905, was fixed as the date for the delivery of the deeds and the payment for the property. At two o'clock in the afternoon of that day, Brown appeared at Levitan's office, where a detective was already in attendance, and stated that he had been unable to procure Mr. Hubert's personal presence, but had received from him deeds duly executed to the property. These he offered to Levitan. At this moment, the detective stepped forward, took possession of the papers, and invited the lawyer to accompany him to the district attorney's office. To this, Brown offered no opposition, and the party adjourned to the criminal courts building, where Mr. John W. Hart, an assistant district attorney, accused him of having obtained money from Levitan by means of false pretenses as to the ownership of the property, and requested from him an explanation. Brown replied without hesitation that he could not understand why this charge should be made against him that he had in fact received the deeds from Mr. Hubert only a short time before he had delivered them to Levitan, that Mr. Hubert was in New York, that he was the owner of the property, and that no fraud of any sort had been attempted or intended. Mr. Hart now examined the supposed deeds and found that the signatures to them, as well as the signatures to a certain affidavit of title, which set forth that William R. Hubert was a person of substance, had all been executed before a notary, Ella F. Brayman, on that very day. He therefore sent at once for Mrs. Brayman, who, upon her arrival, immediately and without hesitation positively identified the defendant, H. Huffman Brown, as the person who had executed the papers before her an hour or so before. The case on its face seemed clear enough. Brown had apparently deliberately forged William R. Hubert's name, and it did not even seem necessary that Mr. Hubert should be summoned as a witness— since the property was recorded in his name, and Brown himself had stated that Hubert was then actually in New York. But Brown indignantly protested his innocence. It was clear, he insisted, that Mrs. Braman was mistaken. For why in the name of common sense should he, a lawyer of standing, desire to forge Hubert's name, particularly when he himself held an unrecorded deed of the same property and could have executed a good conveyance to Levitan had the latter so desired? Such a performance would have been utterly without an object. But the lawyer was nervous, and his description of Hubert as a wealthy mine owner from the West, who owned a great deal of property in New York and had an office in the Flatiron Building, did not ring convincingly in Mr. Hart's ears. The assistant district attorney called up the janitor of the building in question on the telephone. But no such person had an office there. Brown, much flustered, said the janitor was either a fool or a liar. He had been at Hubert's office that very morning. He offered to go and find him in 20 minutes. But Mr. Hart thought that the lawyer had better make his explanation before a magistrate and caused his arrest and commitment on a charge of forgery. Little did he suspect what an ingenious fraud was about to be unearthed. The days went by, and Brown stayed in the tombs, unable to raise the heavy bail demanded, but no Hubert appeared. Meantime, the writer to whom the case had been sent for trial, ordered a complete search of the title to the property, and in a week or so became possessed, to his amazement, of a most extraordinary and complicated collection of facts. He discovered that the lot of land offered by Brown to Levitan, and standing in Hubert's name, was originally part of the property owned by ebby Peterson, the unfortunate Swede who, with his family, had perished in the geyser off Cape Sable in 1888. The title search showed that practically all of the Peterson property had been conveyed by Mary A. Peterson to a person named Ignatius F. X. O'Rourke by a deed which purported to have been executed on June 27, 1888, about two weeks before the Petersons sailed for Copenhagen, and which was signed with Mrs. Peterson's mark, but that this deed had not been recorded until July 3, 1899, 11 years after the loss of the geyser. The writer busied himself with finding someone who had known Mrs. Peterson, and by an odd coincidence discovered a woman living in the Bronx who had been an intimate friend and playmate of the little Peterson girl. This witness, who was but a child when the incident had occurred, clearly recalled the fact that Ebby Peterson had not decided to take his wife and daughter with him on the voyage until a few days before they sailed. They had then invited her, the witness, now a Mrs. Cantwell, to go with them, but her mother had declined to allow her to do so. Mrs. Peterson, moreover, according to Mrs. Cantwell, was a woman of education, who wrote a particularly fine hand. Other papers were discovered executed at about the same time, signed by Mrs. Peterson with her full name. It seemed inconceivable that she should have signed any deed, much less one of so much importance, with her mark, and, moreover, that she should have executed any such deed at all when her husband was on the spot to convey his own property." But the strangest fact of all was that the attesting witness to this extraordinary instrument was h huffman brown it also appeared to have been recorded at his instance 11 years after its execution in the meantime however that is to say between the sinking of the geyser in 88 and the recording of mary peterson's supposed deed in 99 another equally mysterious deed to the same property had been filed this document executed and recorded in 1896 purported to convey part of the Peterson property to a man named John J. Kiley, and was signed by a person calling himself Charles A. Clark. By a later deed executed and signed a few days later, John J. Kiley appeared to have conveyed the same property to Ignatius F. X. O'Rourke, the very person to whom Mrs. Peterson had apparently executed her deed in 1888, and H. Huffman Brown was the attesting witness to both these deeds a glance at the following diagram will serve to clear up any confusion which may exist in the mind of the reader. 1888. Mary A. Peterson. By her mark, deed conveys to I. F. X. O'Rourke. Not recorded until 1899. 1896. Charles A. Clark conveys same property to John J. Kiley. 1896. John J. Kiley conveys to I. F. X. O'Rourke. O'Rourke thus holds land through two sources— Brown was the witness to both these parallel transactions. Of course, it was simple enough to see what had occurred. In 1896, a mysterious man named Clark, without vestige of right or title, so far as the records showed, had conveyed Ebby Peterson's property to a man named Kylie, equally unsubstantial, who had passed it over to one O'Rourke. Then Brown had suddenly recorded Mrs. Peterson's deed, giving O'Rourke the very same property. Thus, this O'Rourke, whoever he may have been, held all the Peterson property by two chains of title, one through Clark and Kiley, and the other through Mrs. Peterson. Then he had gone ahead and deeded it all away to various persons, through one of whom William R. Hubert had secured his title. But every deed on record which purported to pass any fraction of the Peterson property was witnessed by H. Huffman Brown, and Brown was the attesting witness to the deed under which Hubert purported to hold. Thus the chain of title, at the end of which Levitan found himself, Ran back to Mary Peterson with H. Huffman Brown peering behind the heiress of every signature. Mary Peterson to O'Rourke, Clark to Kylie, attesting witness Brown. Kylie to O'Rourke, attesting witness Brown. O'Rourke to William P. Colleton, attesting witness Brown. William P. Colleton to John Garrettson, attesting witness Brown. John Garrettson to Herman Bolt, attesting witness Brown. Herman Bolt to Benjamin Freeman, attesting witness, Brown. Benjamin Freeman to William R. Hubert, attesting witness, Brown. The assistant district attorney rubbed his forehead and wondered who in thunder all these people were. Who, for example, to begin at the beginning, was Charles A. Clark, and why should he be deeding away Ebby Peterson's property? And who were Kylie and O'Rourke and all the rest, Colleton, Garretson, Bolt, and Freeman? And who, for that matter, was Hubert? A score of detectives were sent out to hunt up these elusive persons. But, although the directories of 20 years were searched, no Charles A. Clark, John J. Kiley, or IFX O'Rourke could be discovered. Nor could anyone named Colleton, Freeman, or Hubert be found. The only persons who did appear to exist were Garretson and Bolt. Quite by chance, the assistant district attorney located the former of these, who proved to be one of Brown's clients and who stated that he had taken title to the property at the lawyer's request and as a favor to him, did not remember from whom he had received it, had paid nothing for it, received nothing for it, and had finally deeded it to Herman Bolt at the direction of Brown. Herman Bolt, an ex-judge of the municipal court who had been removed for misconduct in office, admitted grumblingly that while at one time he had considered purchasing the property in question, he had never actually done so that the deed from Gerritsen to himself had been recorded without his knowledge or his authority, that he had paid nothing for the property and had received nothing for it, and had, at the instruction of Brown, conveyed it to Benjamin Freeman. Gerritsen, apparently, had never seen Bolt, and Bolt had never seen Freeman, while William R. Hubert, the person to whom the record showed Freeman had transferred the property, remained an invisible figure, impossible to reduce to tangibility." Just what Brown had attempted to do, had done, was obvious. In some way, being a real estate lawyer, he had stumbled upon the fact that this valuable tract of land lay unclaimed. Accordingly, he had set about the easiest way to reduce it to possession. To make assurance doubly sure, he had forged two chains of title, one through an assumed heir and the other through the owner herself. Then he had juggled the title through a dozen or so grantees and stood ready to dispose of the property to the highest bidder. There he stayed in the tombs, demanding a trial and protesting his innocence, and asserting that if the district attorney would only look long enough, he would find William R. Hubert. But an interesting question of law had cropped up to delay matters. Of course, if there was anybody by the name of Hubert who actually owned the property, and Brown had signed his name, conveying the same, to a deed to Levitan, Brown was guilty of forgery in the first degree but the evidence in the case pointed toward the conclusion that Brown himself was Hubert. If this was so, how could Brown be said to have forged the name of Hubert when he had a perfect legal right to take the property under any name he chose to assume? This was incontestable. If your name be Richard Rowe, you may purchase land and receive title thereto under the name of John Doe, and convey it under that name without violating the law." This, as a general proposition, is true so long as the taking of a fictitious name is for an honest purpose and not tainted with fraud. The assistant district attorney felt that the very strength of his case created, as it were, a sort of legal weakness. For the more evidence he should put in against Brown, the clearer it would become that Hubert was merely Brown himself, and this would necessitate additional proof that Brown had taken the property in the name of Hubert for purposes of fraud which could only be established by going into the whole history of the property. Of course, if Brown were so foolish as to put in the defense that Hubert really existed, the case would be plain sailing. If, however, Brown was as astute as the district attorney believed him to be, he might boldly admit that there was no Hubert except himself, and that in taking title to the property and disposing thereof under that name, he was committing no violation of law for which he could be prosecuted. The case was moved for trial on the 12th of March, 1906, before Judge Warren W. Foster in Part Three of the Court of General Sessions in New York. The defendant was arraigned at the bar without counsel, owing to the absence of his lawyer through sickness, and Mr. Louis Stuyvesant Chandler, the later lieutenant governor of the state, was assigned to defend him. At this juncture, Brown arose and addressed the court. In the most deferential and conciliatory manner, he urged that he was entitled to an adjournment until such time as he could produce William R. Hubert as a witness, stating that although the latter had been in town on December 14th and had personally given him the deeds in question, which he had handed to Levitan, Hubert's interests in the West had immediately called him from the city and that he was then in Goldfields, Nevada, that since he had been in the tombs, he, Brown, had been in correspondence with a gentleman by the name of Alfred Skeels, of the Teller House, Central City, Colorado, from whom he had received a letter within the week to the effect that Hubert had arranged to start immediately for New York, for the purpose of testifying as a witness for the defense. The prosecutor thereupon demanded the production of this letter from the alleged Skeels, and Brown was compelled to state that he had immediately destroyed it on its receipt. The prosecutor then argued that under those circumstances, and in view of the fact that the people's evidence showed conclusively that no such person as Hubert existed, there was no reason why the trial should not proceed then and there. The court thereupon ruled that the case should go on. A jury was procured after some difficulty, and the evidence of Mr. Levitan received, showing that Brown had represented Hubert to be a man of substance and had produced an affidavit purported to be sworn to by Hubert to the same effect, with deeds alleged to have been signed by him. Mrs. Brayman then swore that upon the same day Brown had himself acknowledged these very deeds, and had sworn to the affidavit before her as a notary, under the name of William R. Hubert. Taken with the fact that Brown had in open court stated that Hubert was a living man, this made out a prima facie case. But, of course, the district attorney was unable to determine whether or not Brown would take the stand in his own behalf, or what his defense would be, and in order to make assurance doubly sure, offered in evidence all the deeds to the property in question, thereby establishing the fact that it was originally part of the Peterson estate, and disclosing the means whereby it had eventually been recorded in the name of Hubert. The prosecution then rested its case— And the burden shifted to the defense to explain how all these deeds attested by Brown came to be executed and recorded. It was indeed a difficult, if not impossible task, which the accused lawyer undertook when he went upon the stand. He again positively and vehemently denied that he had signed the name of Hubert to the deed which he had offered to Levitan and persisted in the contention that Hubert was a real man who sooner or later would turn up. He admitted, knowing the Peterson family in a casual way, and said he had done some business for them, but stated that he had not heard of their tragic death until some years after the sinking of the geyser. He had then ascertained that no one had appeared to lay claim to Mrs. Peterson's estate, and he had accordingly taken it upon himself to advertise for heirs. In due course, Charles A. Clark had appeared, and had deeded the property to Kiley, who in turn had conveyed it to O'Rourke. Just who this mysterious O'Rourke was he could not explain, nor could he account in any satisfactory manner for the recording in 1899 of the deed signed with Mary Peterson's mark. He said that it had turned up in O'Rourke's hands after O'Rourke had become possessed of the property through the action of the heirs, and that he had no recollection of ever having seen it before, or of having witnessed it. In the latter transactions by which the property had been split up, he claimed to have acted only as attorney for the different grantors. He was unable to give the address or business of O'Rourke, Clark, Kylie, or Freeman, and admitted that he had never seen any of them save at his own office. He was equally vague as to Hubert, whose New York residence he gave as 111 Fifth Avenue. No such person, however, had ever been known at that address. Brown gave his testimony in the same dry, polite, and careful manner in which he had always been accustomed to discuss his cases and deliver his arguments. It seemed wholly impossible to believe that this respectable-looking person could be a dangerous character. Yet the nature of his offense and the consequences of it were apparent when the state called to the stand an old broom-maker, who had bought from Brown one of the lots belonging to the Peterson estate. Holding up three stumps where fingers should have been, he cried out, choking with tears, My friends, for fifteen years I have worked at making brooms, me and my wife from five in the morning until six at night, and I lose mine fingered trying to save enough money to pie a house that we could call our own. Then, when we saved eight hundred dollars, this man come to us and sold us a lot. We were very happy. Yesterday, another man served me mit a paper that we must leave our house because we did not own the land. We must go away. Where? We have no place to go. Our home is being taken from us, and that man, pointing his stumps at Brown that man has stolen it from us. He stopped, unable to speak. The defendant's lawyer properly objected, but with this piece of testimony ringing in their ears, it is hardly surprising that the jury took but five minutes to convict Brown of forgery in the first degree. A few days later, the judge sentenced him to 20 years in state's prison. Then other people began to wake up. The attorney general guessed that the Peterson property had all as cheated to the state. The Swedish government sent a deputy to make inquiries, the Norwegian government was sure that he was a Norwegian, and the Danish that he was a Dane. No one knows yet who is the real owner, and there are half a dozen heirs squatting on every corner of it. Things are much worse than before Brown tried to sell the ill-fated lot to Levitan, but a great many people who were careless before are careful now. It soon developed, however, that Lawyer Brown's industry and ingenuity had not been confined to the exploitation of the estate of Ebby Peterson. Before the trial was well underway, the City Chamberlain of New York notified the District Attorney that a peculiar incident had occurred at his office, in which not only the defendant figured, but William R. Hubert, his familiar, as well. In the year 1904, a judgment had been entered in the Supreme Court, which adjudged that a certain George Wilson, was entitled to a one-sixth interest in the estate of Jane Elizabeth Barker, recently deceased. George Wilson had last been heard of, 20 years before, as a farmhand in Illinois, and his whereabouts were at this time unknown. Suddenly, however, he had appeared. That is to say, H. Huffman Brown had appeared as his attorney, and demanded his share of the property, which had been deposited to his credit with the City Chamberlain and amounted to $7,500. The lawyer had presented a petition signed apparently by Wilson, and a bond also subscribed by him, to which had been appended the names of certain sureties. One of these was a William R. Hubert, the same William R. Hubert who had mysteriously disappeared when his presence was so vital to the happiness and liberty of his creator. But the city chamberlain had not been on his guard, and had paid over the $7,500 to Brown without ever having seen the claimant or suspecting for an instant that all was not right. It was further discovered at the same time that Brown had made several other attempts to secure legacies remaining uncalled for in the city's treasury. In how many cases he had been successful will probably never be known, but it is unlikely that his criminal career dated only from the filing of the forged Peterson deed in 1896. Brown made a heroic and picturesque fight to secure a reversal of his conviction through all the state courts and his briefs and arguments are monuments to his ingenuity and knowledge of the law. He alleged that his conviction was entirely due to a misguided enthusiasm on the part of the prosecutor, the present writer, whom he characterized as a novelist and dreamer. The whole case, he alleged, was constructed out of the latter's fanciful imagination, a cobweb of suspicion, accusation, and falsehood. Some day his friend Hubert would come out of the West, into which he had so unfortunately disappeared, and release an innocent man sentenced practically to death because the case had fallen into the hands of one whose sense of the dramatic was greater than his logic. Perchance he will. Mayhap, when H. Huffman Brown is the oldest inmate of Sing Sing, or even sooner, some gray-haired figure will appear at the state capitol and knock tremblingly at the door of the executive asking for a pardon or a rehearing of the case and claiming to be the only original, genuine William R. Hubert. Such a denouement would not be beyond the realms of possibility, but more likely the request will come in the form of a petition, duly attested and authenticated before some notary in the West protesting against Brown's conviction and incarceration, and bearing the flowing signature of William R. Hubert, the same signature that appears on Brown's deeds to Levitan, the same that is affixed to the bond of George Wilson, the vanished farmhand, claimant to the estate of Jane Elizabeth Barker. End of chapter 8